Welcome to Doctorate, the podcast of PhD candidates in the humanities and the social sciences at the University of Vienna. This is the place for communication and discussion about issues surrounding us in the world of science. We address the what's, why's and how's of our work and invite researchers from different disciplines to explore topics and ideas they and we deeply care about. Welcome to episode 11 of Doctorate. Our topic for today is careers after PhD. I am your host, IUKC, and here we have with us two wonderful guests who have completed their PhDs, Dr. Faime Alpagu and Dr. Dominic Hagman. So uh, would you guys like to tell me what your PhDs were about? Maybe we can start with Faime. Yeah, hello. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here. My PhD was in the intersection of uh, biographical research, migrational research, and audiovisual sociology. So for that, I collected photographs, audio, and written letters by so-called guest workers from Turkey living in Austria. And I also did biographical narrative interviews with them. Basically, my idea was to make a comparison between uh, different narrations um, of and about migration, like written ones, um, audio ones, and also um, audiovisual ones. Mm. Very interesting. How about you, Dominic? Yeah, my PhD thesis was about Roman rural landscapes in Noricum. Noricum was a Roman province, an ancient Roman province, roughly in the area of today's Austria. And uh, as it's already called in the title, it's about rural settlement, rural settlement dynamics, rural settlement patterns in Roman antiquity in a special study region within this province and I was interested in how everything correlates, how the different settlements uh, evolved, how they were connected to regional centers, to other military stations, to the cities and so on. This is really fascinating to hear, especially from a person who who just sits in front of the computer and does most of the work. So it's, it's very cool. So the next question, I guess, would be how long did it take for you guys to finish uh, your projects? Because I think, Dominic, you mentioned that it was fairly straightforward for you. It was quite straightforward, but it took me four years. So I managed to... to to do my whole PhD in the in the time uh, during my um, assistantship at the department. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Faime, how about you? So for me, um, it was not that straightforward. I would say at the whole it took um, maybe it took five years. So. Um, Actually, I signed up for the doctoral school, uh, doctoral studies too early because of the visa and citizenship problems because I wanted to have the Austrian citizenship, which I have now. And in that time, it was important to have a job and also to to be signed off the university. But actually, I started to work on um, on the project like 2016, uh, but. Meanwhile, I was also um, working as interpreter for Kurdish and Turkish in, in um, different organizations. But from 2017, with the scholarship from Austrian Academy of Sciences, I really started to to work on my PhD, which I ended end of 2021. So I would say five years. Mm-hmm. And a question coming from a PhD student myself, how did it feel after finishing? Uh, it it felt quite well, but uh, 
it took longer to to realize that I was uh, finished and uh, I always tell this anecdote that I went to the doctor and at the doctor, she called me Dr. Alpagu and it was the moment that I realized, yes, PhD is finished. I have done it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, that's something I should note. Maybe I should go to the doctors when I'm yeah. done with mine. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing it regularly since then. So <laughs> just <laughs> to have the feeling. <laughs> So you say there was salvation, a great feeling. Um, but after you were finished with this big task, did you have a feeling of, okay, what now? What should I do now? So I already planned in the third year of my time at the, at the University of Vienna. Um, that, uh, so I thought, I thought for myself, okay, you need a plan for what to do afterwards. And this was also the time where I started to write several proposals for third-party funded projects. Um, and in the end, uh, I, one of them, also, so I got one one of this of these grants. It's a co-digital project from the Austrian Academy of Sciences. Um, together with the Austrian Ecological Institute and the States Museum of Carinthia. And this was, I think I'm a special case, this was on the one hand the thing regarding having an own research project. Um, on the other hand, I started working immediately after my my employment at the university was terminated in a private ecological, in a private ecological company. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's say from starting with the proposal writing took you a year. Yeah, so all in all, one year. Yeah. 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 I already started to have these uh, these thoughts because you need to to think. Okay, what's as next? But uh, um, after I was finished, I was very lucky to to see that there is a position of parental replacement at the Doctoral School of Social Sciences. Um, and then I applied it while I was still finalizing my PhD. Um, so I worked about 10 months as the uh, parental replacement of Roman Pfefferle as um, coordinator, which was really very good because it it gave me this time of to breathe a bit, not to uh, think only on the on the projects, on the science, but also to see the university from another angle, and also to to see um, how these structures also are working. So I can really recommend people uh, to work also in different um, areas of the university so, to see and also to learn to <laughs> empathize uh, with the other colleagues who are working in in different uh, settings, and. Um, my feeling of okay, but what's next? Because I I applied for some uh, some research projects and uh, which were uh, rejected. One of them was rejected uh, with the uh, uh, with the argumentation that I was not international enough. So we all know that <laughs> <laughs> that problem of going international. And the question is also what is international? Because from the point of uh, view of a lot of people in Austria, I would uh, I would be considered as international or not Austrian. I don't know if this is also another question to to discuss. But uh, we we know that the, that is this forcing of going abroad, no matter what what was, uh, but I didn't want to do it uh, in that sense because uh, I came to Austria 
um, as master's uh, student and then I did my PhD, which means that I needed to, some time to to enjoy being settled finally. So and then and also knowing a system, but also to learn the system. Um, and luckily enough, I was offered uh, for a P uh, postdoc position starting with December 2023, mm -hmm. uh, 22, mm -hmm. since mm -hmm. then I'm there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like roughly a year for you as well, although you had that position at the university. Yeah, um, I had uh, like 10 months and then um, from that I had like four months of uh, of break and we at the IMS and at the IMS um, they were quite relaxed. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to see me there because <laughs> it was like you don't have anything to offer so please mm -hmm. find a job. <laughs> <laughs> For yourself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I'm hearing from you guys is that the location of being in Austria, in Vienna, uh, was quite important for you guys. So uh, I assume this was one of your big considerations. Uh, did you also have any other considerations? Yeah, as said, um, at the one hand, my whole family is is located in, in the surroundings of Vienna and Vienna itself. Um, this was for sure, at least at the moment, one of the most important things. The other thing is, speaking about my personal scientific specialization, is that I'm working on very Central European Roman archaeology, And I think it's important uh, if you will do archaeology to a specific topic, you need to go to the area you're working on. And as I am working on the area of yeah, Austria and, and, and some neighboring countries, um, yeah, it would make no sense to move, for example, uh, Yeah, to Mexico, for example. So yeah, it's 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 weird, and and as already said, uh, the problem is that I think the system wants to to force you to move, and I think it's important to find ways, and I think there are ways uh, to break this system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the problem is what uh, Dominic says about is uh, the the system forces you to to move around, but system sees all all people as if they are equal. So as if mm -hmm. all biographies are straightforward, you study and then have a PhD position and then it's time to go abroad. But not everybody has the chance and also can a be able to go abroad and start anew. So that is the one of the things that I'm really criticizing it. Um, because one thing is it is It is certainly good to go abroad and see the other perspectives. But when it is f being forced to go out, but no matter what, then the, the problem starts. So I think uh, one of the things that it was also my consideration was I cannot start all over again. I can go for a while to see the other perspectives, but it's enough <laughs> after a while to be migrant and and mobile as a <laughs> for migrant I, I don't know what I am yeah. but it's sometimes at some point it is enough um, and that's the, the other thing is um, consideration what you were talking financial thing so you need something to live with so I think we can all uh, 
agree and, and meet yeah. us at that point. Because also at a specific point you want to build up your, uh, your real life, so yeah. to say, maybe with a family, even yeah. a family or something like that. And and uh, just thinking about to get money, for example, to buy a flat or a house or something like that. It's not possible to get um, a, f a financiation for some for, for such a thing if you are just moving around all the time. So, mm. so and stay six months there and then moving to another country to stay there for three months and then move again to stay somewhere for two years and so on and so on. So, so uh, it's, it's, it's nobody thought about how this system should work in reality, I think. So they just imagined it somewhere on a table and then in a, in a bureau and, and, that's, and that's it. And, and now we see that it won't work. So, okay, but let's see. Yeah, yeah, let us see. Uh, yeah, so regarding this uh, financial considerations, um, Dominic, I know that you, you took quite a, an interesting approach to your career in that you didn't just stay in academia, but you ventured a little bit outside of that. Would you like to elaborate on that? Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, let's see. Uh, let's say I'm some sort of hi hybrid Um On the one hand, I have a third-party-funded research project um, located at the Austrian Academy of Sciences and at the States Museum of Carinthia. On the other hand, I'm working for a private archaeological company uh, called Ardik, like archaeological Dick Ardik, but it's not it's it's German and means archaeological Dienst, so quite a quite a boring name, but <laughs> but it works. And uh, yeah, so for example, in the first half of my week, uh, just to imagine, I'm for example working on that research project, which is about long-term data archiving in archaeology to to provide sustainable data for the long term for 30, 50, 40 years. Um, On the other hand, I'm, as said, working in this private company and, for example, within that company, I'm in charge of a local museum at the Danube Limes, this, this border region along the Danube um, in a small town called Dreismauer, which has been in, in Roman times a Roman military station. And in course of this work for this company, I'm taking care of this Uh, so to say, scientific communication stuff also. So in archaeology, it's quite specific because uh, there is quite a big um, private branch. Um, so in archaeology, research is not only conducted by research institutions like academies or universities, but also by private companies. And um, for example, just to get an, im an imagination, around 80%, 80% of all jobs in archaeology in Austria are in private companies. So. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of archaeological jobs is in the private sector. Wow. And the private sector is not just digging, as somebody would imagine. Mm -hmm. It's, as I said, all, also uh, the museum sector. It is um, also other kinds of field work like geophysical prospections and so on. So it's highly interdisciplinary, very digital and, yeah, in fact, very diverse. Yeah, that, that sounds very, very diverse indeed, and being able to have the opportunity to go into the private sector. Uh, this is not quite 
the case in sociology, is it? Or could it be? <laughs> it is difficult to say. As I was doing my uh, my sociology studies um, in Istanbul, we were talking about you can be everything but nothing. I think it's very difficult to, to answer this question uh, because a lot of sociologists also work in, um, in different areas such as journalism, uh, such as in uh, public uh, sectors, um, in uh, in policymaking institutions, uh, but also in advertisement sector, because sociologists now have the society works. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of uh, ironic to see that you, you learn, for example, to be very critical, but also in the advertisement, uh, you do things that you would criticize, but you know that the society works like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, that's one of the sectors, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, then maybe the question begs, what was this transition like then for for both your cases of moving from a PhD into your postdoc um, or, or, or into your, your new job? You know, was this fairly smooth or was there a rupture? How was your experiences with that? So I think real life archaeology is quite different from a university driven archaeology, so to say. So of course it's uh, it's you so you have to be fond of for example getting up early in archaeology so so because usually for example construction works and so on starts at seven so you have to st- to be there at seven and if you go there for one and a half hours so you have to go up at four or what don't know what so 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 this is maybe one of the downsides um, especially if you are not so so happy about getting up early yeah but um i think if you are at least in the field also from in course of a university project for example or an academy project so if you are on field research um, then anyhow you have to go up early so it's 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 in the system so <laughs> Yeah, so, but I think this was, in fact, the most influential difference between my university work and the work then later in this in this combination out of a private company and a own research project that my whole um, workflow through the week changed completely um, and got much more, yeah, so to say, normal, like, like, uh, like yeah getting up early then coming back at four or five and and then but also going to bed quite early because on the next day of course you have to to get up early again and so on and so on so and i think this is especially quite different from from university life where it's somehow the opposite so getting up late and then going to bed late also yeah. yeah maybe at least this was my personal impression yeah as, as a student i can attest that i do not get up early <laughs> So in this sociology also postdoc, you don't have this question of <laughs> getting up early. It's rather late. Um, yeah, in my case, I would say being um, being a sociologist and and uh, also doing migrational research um, and having speaking uh, languages that are considered as marginalized uh, like Kurdish and Turkish um, it's kind of 
one of the adv- advantages that I had um, that I started actually during my master's degree to work as an interpreter for these languages for different institutions such as Diakonie and Caritas and Women's Shelter and also, also but foremost for the refugees. In the postdoc, I was like, these were projects that I could do always. So when there is a need for interpreter, um, especially for Kurdish, because there are not lots of people who speak Kurdish, then I know that I could jump in. And also um, already during my PhD, I was asked to have talks for different um, organizations. This is things that I am doing. So kind of this is called uh, third mission. And which is also very important for me because uh, Coming also from uh, directly from the area and uh, working as an empirical researcher, um, it is very important for me to 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 bring back the results that I gathered from the uh, from the field. Uh, so um, that is one of the things that helped me to 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 have this uh, transition from PhD to uh, to postdoc. Um, but the the other thing is this. Um, when you are postdoc, you need to be good because you are not a PhD anymore and you need to publish and you need to publish your monograph. But the question is, how can you publish your monograph? Do you want to publish your monograph that soon? Because when you ask for me, I want to take a bit time and then consider it again and write it, rewrite it. But in order to be able to show in the field you are here and you did that. So these are, I think, um, the thing is that everything must be very quickly and you have to be very good. You have to be everywhere. It's kind of Übermensch they are looking for, yeah. but we are not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's it's sounding like you have developed uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of different kinds of skills uh, during your PhD, be it both within the curriculum or, or outside of this. So a question to both of you is, I mean, clearly I can hear that, that it has helped a lot, but how, how has it helped and what sort of skills do you think are very, very essential to take with you from the PhD into your careers? I think you need to be flexible. I have the feeling that maybe you need a, a long-term goal and and a lot of short-term uh, ways and 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 prospects and also strategies to go to that um, long um, term. There is the book uh, from Michel Ende um, uh, Momo. I love the uh, the scene where Momo uh, where the um, street. Um, how do you say it? This. Ben, Ben, I don't know how, what's your name. Um, that's the Strassenkehrer. Yeah, Strassenkehrer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am um, in the section of migration research with a, a lot of uh, languages, which I do not uh, talk in perfectly uh, any of them. But <laughs> there's this, there's the, there's the thing from Momo that the one of the protagonists tells Momo when you see the whole street, you cannot achieve it. You have to divide the street into sections and into um, into um, small pieces and go from one breath to the next. So I think that is one of the important things to gain during the PhD, but also for us in the postdoc, because it's a long way, it's a difficult way, and we have to stay um, healthy 
not only physically but also emotionally and that's the most important thing so i think that is one of the thing to be flexible and to take a breath and then to to reconsider again what what are the goals and how can i do it Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think it's or a thing which was important for me that I've learned was uh, to distinguish between unnecessary things and important things, in fact, um, and to focus or to learn to focus on the essen essential things, um, regardless if these things are scientific or private or whatever. But I think this was one of the major positive outputs for me personally of my PhD studies that I've really learned um, and, and, get, uh, and really got a feeling uh, yeah, how to distinguish important from unimportant elements yeah. regarding a specific question. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of uh, important elements, one of uh, the segments that we have on our podcast is that we ask our guests to bring some objects that might have been quite important within the scope of uh, our topic today. So uh, I'm going to invite you guys to share what objects you brought. Maybe Jaime can start? Yeah, with pleasure. I brought uh, three pen and also one um audio cassette. I, I start with the, uh, with the pens. I received them from one of my interview partners who is a non-Muslim uh, coming from Turkey. And he gave me this pen because of uh, he was like uh, happy um, to see. And I hope that I could achieve at some point that all his history, all his story is written and also heard because um, mostly the story and history of the marginalized people is not seen. Um, that is one of the questions I'm dealing with um, now in my postdoc. And the other thing is, um, is also in accordance to the question of who is speaking for whom and how. Um, so um, regarding to the podcast, the last one, I guess, was from uh, you decolonizing academia. And the other thing is um, I brought one of the um, audio letter. That is one um, analog cassette that my interview partners in the 60s, 70s and 80s recorded their uh, voices and sent to Uh, back and forward to family members. And in that audio letter, you see and hear the voices of people, voices of the migrants talking for the, themselves. Um, and that's the reason why I brought these two wow. or four objects, actually. Yeah. Wow. How about for you, Dominic? Yeah, so I chose a completely different item so I just took my smartphone with me, surprise. So um, yeah, why? Uh, if one thinks of an archaeologist, one might think, might think of a guy sitting in, a, in the desert, in the dust, in the trench with a shovel or with a trowel or with a, with a brush and, and brushing some sort of skeleton or something like that. And of course, this, is, this picture is still true, but it's not What is it all about in archaeology? So therefore, it's all, I think it's also a good a good symbol, um, f yeah, for for illustrating how also, uh, yeah, doing research in archaeology completely changed, um, and got quite, as I said, digitized. Yeah, 
Yeah, wow, very, very different objects, but but uh, both have very, very interesting uh, stories and reasoning behind it. So thank you both for bringing that along. Uh, as we slowly get towards the end of this episode, I would like to ask you guys, so if you look back now, uh, are you guys satisfied with the path that you chose to take in terms of PhD and career? So I would definitely choose it again. If I got the possibility to turn the time back, I think I wouldn't change a lot of things so in general i would of course if i know about my my uh, specific yeah things which went not that right okay uh, i will try to change them but in generally speaking i would i wouldn't change it uh, in a in a way which would would be drastically different to the way i've i've done it before I would also say that, um, yeah, with the word satisfied, I am. So I am very happy to be a sociologist, to be a migrational researcher. Um, and I would, again, do the same thing, uh, but I would necessarily, and of course, do some things uh, difficult, uh, different. For example, um, I would be more careful about uh, considerations also uh, now that I I am kind of since, I don't know, very meanwhile, um, 2017, I would say, in the research area. Um, and I know that migrational research, racial studies are not free of racism and colonialism. And uh, Come, going back with this thought, I would be more careful about that and more conscious about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah being a PhD student myself, it's actually very inspiring to to, to hear you guys' outlook. Um, and I'm curious to ask, uh, you know, PhD, it has its highs and its lows, but it's a difficult time. So I wonder, uh, does it get better after, you know? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> it's very convincing the way Dominic says it. <laughs> I think it's really uh, personal and it is also about the question, what what do you as, as expect to be better? So if you have a position, you earn better. And I have the feeling that it has really something of people give you more attention. So, for example, I can... Um, being women, being non-white, as this uh, this aspect, this intersectional aspect, is also important. You start to to write faster, which is also important. Mm -hmm. And if you are in the kind of in a um, in a network, then you start to also discuss uh, maybe more differentiated and also have the access to other uh, to the more. Um, networks where you can maybe build with them. Um, so, yeah, it is. If it's the wish to stay in academia, I think we all should stay in academia because academia needs good people <laughs> and all the kind ones. Yeah, indeed. Well, uh, then as a final question, uh, if we speak about the past and your future, um, very curious to see where did you see yourself five years ago and perhaps inspirationally, where do you see yourself five years from now? So, okay, so thinking about five years ago, I think I was... Yeah, thinking about my my future in that time, future PhD project, um, and then in turn, 
in five years in the future. So let's say in 2028. Um, yeah, so then I think I will for sure apply for another project. So I think I'm really going to to, to do this. So as 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 my colleague said, uh, so if you want to stay in academia, it's it's not enough to think, okay, now I have my PhD and that's it and goodbye. So 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 you have to, I think, as I said, it's a major step, but you have to go on and 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 make other steps. And then, of course, I I hope that that my company then still exists in in 2028. And this is one of the good things uh, regarding working in the private sector that there are no such limitations or other weirdnesses um, like in today's especially university uh, research landscape. So yeah, so I think I will still work in a company and maybe have another project. So this is my utopia for, for 2028. I don't know what I was thinking, but I was thinking of being able to stay at the academia and having a position which I would say I'm lucky um, enough to have a postdoc position now, but also to have a certain a network of, of people who I appreciate um, a lot as person, but also um, also scientifically, because for me it's really important also to have this atmosphere of a kind atmosphere of working. It's not all, only about working and being, being very good and having impact. It is important, but the most important thing is also to be in a collegial atmosphere and also feeling good, which I, I, I feel I am one of the one that I um, have this atmosphere. Um, when I look forward to five years, I think Oh, a tenure-track professorship would not be bad. So <laughs> if somebody is uh, listening to this and then has a position for me, please um, contact me. <laughs> yes, uh, like, like Dominic, I hope that I can have further projects, but also most importantly, I know it is um, utopia, but to have a position which is not uh, for only one year or two years so that's the, mm -hmm. the most uh, important question for of us where we are all um, at the same boat so I hope for better working conditions and and better contracts at the yeah. academia yeah. Yeah. great uh, well we've come to the end of our episode today uh, this was episode 11 of doctorate careers after PhD. Thank you to our guests, Faime and Dominic, for coming and talking to us. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was written and produced by Ninia Buman, IUKC, Nadine Riegler and Georgia Sogu. Editing and everything technical by Nadine Riegler and I am IUKC, your host. Doctorate is brought to you by the Doctoral School of Historical and Cultural Studies and the Vienna Doctoral School of Social Sciences. It is created and produced by the School Fellows. 